By October 1529, the Protestant Reformation had gained significant momentum. You see, 12 years earlier, on October 31st, 1517, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther had posted his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, where he served. The church door served as sort of a community bulletin board. But his purpose was actually to challenge his colleagues to a debate, fellow priests and professors and monks, those who had been trained in theology. He actually never intended to ignite an international controversy. The posting wasn't even written in German. It was in Latin, which, is the, which was the academic language of the day. But someone obtained a copy of the 95 Theses and translated it into German. They printed it on Gutenberg's new printing press and distributed it by the thousands, and Luther became almost literally an overnight sensation, which is good because the church was badly in need of reformation. So one thing led to another, plunging all of Europe into religious and political upheaval. God used Luther to match, uh, as a match to light the kindling of the Reformation, which had piled up actually for centuries by this time. No one escaped the convulsions of the church and its inevitable consequences. In their newfound um, freedom, reformers began springing up um, all over, Germany, Switzerland, France, later in England, Scotland, and, and the Netherlands. All of Europe was engulfed in the flames of the Reformation. Now, while largely in agreement, each Reformation group began to have its own unique twist on certain doctrines and practices. You should know there were also significant political ramifications to the movement, uh, which brings us back to 12 years after the posting of the 95 Theses. You see, the Roman Catholic Church had to this point held unbelievable political power with the ability to control the appointments of local rulers and regional um, kings and, and even the emperor himself of the Holy Roman Empire, which you've heard me say before was neither holy nor Roman, but he could appoint him. Philip of Hesse was one of those regional German rulers, and he recognized that political advantage could be gained by uniting the various Reformation movements. If he could somehow, you see, form a political alliance between the Protestant states, he might be able to weaken the Catholic states and that Holy Roman Empire. So he called for a meeting to convene in Marburg, Germany on October 1st, 1529. It was the largest gathering to date of Protestant reformers. Included in the list of attendees were such heavy hitters as Ulrich Zwingli of Switzerland and, of course, Martin Luther of Germany. The, the meeting was actually called the Colloquy of Marburg, and it lasted from October 1st till October 4th. During those very fateful days, they could agree on 
lots of doctrines, doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity, the person of Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection, justification by faith alone, the doctrine of original sin, the Holy Spirit, the church, the number of the sacraments or ordinances. They ironed out uh, an agreement interestingly, on 14 of 15 points. In fact, as I recall, 14 and two-thirds of 15 points. They had each main point subdivided, 14 and two-thirds points. But they arrived at their respective understandings of communion, and they could not agree. While both Luther and Zwingli strongly denied the teaching of the Catholic Church called transubstantiation, they could not agree on how Christ was present in the sacrament, if at all. And so, they left the meeting without a signed agreement and no political alliance. And unfortunately, that disagreement exists to this very day. I say unfortunately because such division has resulted in tens of thousands of Protestant denominations around the world. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. In a day when the church has been diminished in value and become quite optional, in a day when individualism and consumerism have reigned supreme, I want to remind us this morning that it is about Christ and His kingdom of which the church plays an indispensably vital part. You know, the church that God loves so much that He bought it, He purchased it with His own blood Acts 20 says, the church Jesus promised to build strong enough to withstand the attacks of the evil one and, frankly, strong enough to withstand our misunderstandings, indeed our failure to understand the importance and centrality of the church and its ordinances. How important is understanding communion? How deep is the divide uh, between those who disagree. Mary I of England ruled about a quarter of a century after the colloquy, 1553 to 1558. During her reign, she, a Catholic, had almost 300 Protestants burned at the stake. Why? For refusing to see the physical body and blood in the elements during communion. All of that earned her the name of Bloody Mary. Pastor John Piper suggests if that particular generation is known for their brutality, this one perhaps will be known for our superficiality. Now, the church… Uh, mentioned it, can be defined as a group of believers in Jesus Christ who have been called out of this present evil age for some very specific purposes like fellowship and worship and evangelism and discipleship, among other things. Included in the definition is the very important understanding actually recovered at the Reformation, from the Reformation on, that the true church is committed to the gospel rightly taught 
from the Word of God and to the ordinances rightly administered and observed, of which there are not seven, but only two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, baptism is a rich practice symbolizing our identification with Jesus and his, think of the picture, and his death, burial, and resurrection. It symbolizes our sins being washed away, our dying to ourself as we are buried with Christ and being raised to walk a new life in Christ, as well as it symbolizes our entrance into the big C, the, the, the big C church of Jesus Christ. While there are many nuances and practices within the Christian church um, today, that the practice of believer's baptism by immersion, believer's baptism by immersion, most closely catches the meaning of the word baptism and most closely mirrors the practice observed in the New Testament. But I'm not preaching on baptism today. The second ordinance is called communion or the Lord's Supper. Some call it the Eucharist, which comes from the Greek word eucharisteo, which means to give thanks. So the Eucharist is the giving of thanks for the body and blood of Jesus. But again, there is a variety of teaching and practice with the ordinance, so I wanted to cover it today, trying my best to explain the practice biblically. And then we will end our time together by observing the table together. And since it has been some time since we have observed communion, since we have many tuning in by live stream, I've decided to take an aside from our ongoing study in Second Peter to discuss today the Lord's Supper, to prepare us rightly for it. So let's begin with the institution, if you will, of the ordinance found in Matthew chapter 26. We will hopefully then arrive at what a definition of communion to see what it really is. Matthew 26, verses 26 to 30 say this, while they, that is Jesus and his disciples, were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And we had taken a cup and given thanks. He gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Incidentally, we read basically the same description in the Gospel of Mark and a similar account in Luke who adds the important words of Jesus, do this in remembrance of me. Paul says the same thing, quoting Jesus, do this, both this eating and this drinking, in remembrance of me. Paul then goes on to say, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, which we talked about last week. Jesus is coming. And we observe communion because we believe that. From that, we understand that while baptism is a one-time event symbolizing our identification with Christ's death and resurrection, our entrance into the church, communion, conversely, is an ongoing identification with Christ and our ongoing participation with 
the church. So some of you have been in churches which practice communion weekly or monthly, perhaps quarterly. I've known of churches that do it annually. The Scripture does not define how often we are to observe it. It just says as often as we do so, indicating that it is more than once. We proclaim His death until He comes. Now, there is evidence in the New Testament that the early church observed communion whenever they got together, probably at least weekly on the first day of the week. That's Sunday, by the way. Maybe more, perhaps when they gathered daily in one another's homes. The point is this. Frequency is not commanded, but it appears to be rather frequent. So here at Alliance, we choose to observe the practice at least on the first Sunday of each month, plus some other uh, scattered times throughout the year. And since, again, we have not met for some months, and because of the pandemic, we have not observed the ordinance, I want us desperately to do so today. Now, as most of you know, the first Lord's Supper, that's what Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Lord's Supper. The first Lord's Supper took place on Thursday night. We just read about it, the night of Jesus' betrayal before His crucifixion on Good Friday. Jesus said about the supper, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, meaning this meal, this ordinance was directly connected in some way to the Passover. And it points to Jesus causing Paul to say, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Now, you remember the Passover is found in Exodus chapter 12. The Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. Moses had been sent to deliver them and to lead them to the land of promise. Of course, Pharaoh, per plan, refused um, uh, giving God the opportunity to display His power and glory over the nation of Israel and their pagan gods. I might just take an aside, not even in my notes, giving God the opportunity to demonstrate that there is one true and living God. In a world that suggests today that pluralism works, that it doesn't matter which God you believe, which God the Egyptians believe, or which God the, 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 uh, the Thai believe, or which God the Africans believe, it doesn't matter. It matters. He would obtain glory through the nation of Israel and over their pagan gods. This, that display came in the form of ten plagues, the last of which was the death of the firstborn. It was during that last plague that God instituted the Passover and also the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On the night, you know the story, that the, the death angel was to go through the land. The Israelites were to sacrifice a lamb, placing the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the header beam or the lintel of the house. When the death angel saw the blood, he would pass over that house, leaving the firstborn within alive. And from that time forward, they were to celebrate this event annually to commemorate their deliverance from Egypt. Don't miss that. They were to observe this annually to commemorate their deliverance from Egypt. On the tenth day of the first month of their year, the month of Nisan, they were to select a lamb without spot or blemish, 
And we begin to see already how this is pointing. This is a, this is, this is a type pointing to Christ. They were to keep the lamb until the 14th day of the month and then sacrifice it at twilight. That evening, they were to roast it and enjoy the Passover meal together with the lamb, unleavened bread, wine, bitter herbs, and a fruit and nut chutney. The, 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 the week following was the f- week of unleavened bread, during which time they removed all leaven from their houses, symbolizing both the haste and, uh, with which they had left Egypt, as well as leaving behind all the evil influences of Egypt. There is a lot of typology here. As you would expect, by the time of Jesus, all kinds of tradition had arisen around the Passover. They would select the lamb on the 10th of the month as prescribed, but then they would take it to the priests for approval. They would keep that lamb, the approved lamb, until the 14th of the month, and two men would take it to the priests to be sacrificed. Remember, it had to be sacrificed at twilight, which by this time came to mean somewhere between 3 and 5 p.m. There would, be, uh, there would be lots of people and lots of lambs and lots of blood. In fact, it is said that the blood would flow out of the back of the temple down to the Kidron Valley below to the brook r- running through that valley, the Kidron Brook, and it would turn it red. The men would then take the lamb um, back to where they celebrated the Passover with their families. The typical Passover meal went like this. First, the head of the household would offer thanksgiving, praying over the first of, don't miss this, four common cups of wine to be shared during the meal. Common cups means that everyone drank from the same cup. Do not worry, we will not be doing that today. Those four cups of wine corresponded to the four promises that God made to the Israelites in Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7, as He prepared to deliver them. The four promises went like this, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. Number two, I will deliver you from their bondage. Number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And number four, then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. They would alternate between eating and drinking and singing the Hallel, that's Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. The, the, the point is, it was a festive celebration ordered to remind them of God's great act of salvation in delivering them from Egypt. And at that last Passover, I might add, of the Old Covenant, Jesus instituted the f- first Lord's Supper of the New Covenant. You see, one thing that you need to understand is this. God is really into rich or theologically rich symbols which point to His goodness toward us. That is what communion is all about. And so for thousands of years, the Jews celebrated the Passover. And for 2,000 years now, the church has uh, had a theologically rich tradition of celebrating communion to remember God's goodness toward us through the cross of His Son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is really the definition of the ordinance. It is a an event, a memorial by which we remember and celebrate the body of Christ broken for us and His blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. 
You see, here is my challenge this morning. I, I don't want to just give a lecture on the doctrinal practice of communion in, in the church. The truth is, some of you have observed communion dozens, perhaps hundreds of times. And we take the cracker crumb and we get the little cup of juice. It's even a little worse today because it's prepackaged. And we partake. But I want us to remember what this is all about. To remember the deeply rich theological truth of the practice and be moved by its meaning and to feast on Christ with incredible thanksgiving in our hearts. I want us to remember. Which takes us back to the beginning and the unfortunate disagreements that existed uh, in the church about the meaning of the practice. The disagreements can really be broken down to two basic ideas. First, in what way is Jesus present in the practice, if at all? And what does the practice, secondly, actually do? I also will take us uh, shortly to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and, um, to help us understand who should observe it and how it should be observed. So that first question, in what way is Jesus present at His table? We call it the Lord's Supper. Is he here? It's an important question. You see, I agree with Professor Wayne Grudem, who says this it would be healthy for the church today to recapture a more vivid sense of God's presence at the table of the Lord. Let me tell you at the outset I believe that Christ is here in a special way at his table. Reformers, most Protestants agree that doctrine of transubstantiation is not quite right. You may not, that may be a new word to you. you. You may know the Catholics teach, the Catholic Church teaches to this day when the priest blesses the elements, specifically when he holds them up in the air and says the Latin words, uh, uh, hocus corpus meum, the bread and the wine. That literally translated, this is my body. The bread and the wine literally turn into the body and blood of Jesus. That is, Christ, they teach, is physically present. There are all kinds of ramifications to that. Most notably, they believe that when they observe the Eucharist each week at the Mass, there is a sense in which the body and blood of Christ is sacrificed again. Most of us Protestants take great issue with that. Just for your information, remember the colloquy of Marburg and the disagreement on that 15th point. Martin Luther believed that while the elements did, don't turn physically into the body and blood of Christ, he said that Jesus is present in the elements. It's called consubstantiation. Luther said that Jesus is in, with, and under the elements, much like a sponge contains water, so also the elements contain the body and blood of Christ. So when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, he meant it literally. Zwingli took issue with that, saying the elements themselves represent the body and blood of Christ, and the meal is simply a memorial, a time to remember. A third view, one I personally hold, 
is that there is a special sense in which Christ is spiritually present when we come to His table. I'm, I'm not suggesting that He's spiritually present in the elements. I'm saying He's spiritually and specially present at the table. Again, quoting Wayne Grudem. Sometimes Protestants have become so concerned to deny the Roman Catholic view of the real presence of Christ in the elements that they have wrongly denied even any spiritual presence. In fact, another author calls it the doctrine of the real absence, that Jesus is everywhere present except at his table. I would suggest the elements of bread and, of course, in our case, juice, remind us that Jesus is spiritually present among us. We remember his body and blood, and we continue to feast on Christ with thanksgiving in our hearts. There is a real sense in which he is spiritually and specially present, I would suggest, at his table. That's why we call it communion. We commune with him, which means, my brothers and sisters, it is more than just a broken piece of cracker and a little mini cup of juice. This is a special event that draws us together. So leads to that second question, what does the practice do? Well, in no sense is it redemptive. In no sense is it saving. You're not receiving saving grace. But it does remind us of the death of Christ on our behalf, and it reminds us of our sin and need of a Savior, and it gives us opportunity to examine our own lives and recommit to personal purity and to feast spiritually on Christ and all of His benefits toward us in salvation. Those are all very important words. It also reminds us as we partake together of something more. Paul addressed it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As you know, Paul was writing in 1 Corinthians to a divided church which had lots of problems. One of the most significant problems was their factions. They're dividing themselves around certain personalities. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. I follow Paul. But I follow Christ. These divisions were even seen in the way that they observed communion at the church of Corinth. Without going into a lot of detail, a cursory reading shows that they were enjoying a feast together. It was called the agape meal, the love feast, without, but they were doing that without waiting for everyone to be present. To that end, Paul said, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They were divided around their factions. Certain groups in the church, namely the rich, would dine sumptuously, while certain groups, namely the poor, would have little or nothing to eat. And so Paul reminds them, and I would remind us today, that communion is a symbol of our unity together. 1 Corinthians 10, he says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing, a fellowship, a koinonia in the blood of Christ. is not the bread which we break a sharing, a koinonia in the body of Christ. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Please see, as we partake together, it is a picture of our unity, which is 
for, for the reason for me to throw in, as I do at every opportunity, not to get used to the live stream. We need each other in unity. That's why chapter 11, after reciting the practice of the Lord's Supper, Paul goes on to call them to unity through personal examination. Look at the verses, just three quick verses. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who is, uh, eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body what body? This body. Rightly. In the context, not judging the body rightly means not understanding our unity. He goes on to say, that's why many of you are sick. Some have even died because of your sinful, divisive conditions in approaching this very special meal. In other words, do not take it lightly. All of this helps us identify, by the way, who should participate in communion. And I want to say this very gently. It should be followers of Jesus, those who have identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it should be for those whose lives are examined and forgiven and confessed and therefore are clean by Christ's work before the Lord. Which brings us then to the practice. Jesus took some bread, we see, and gave a blessing, perhaps something like the common blessing at this time. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Then he broke that bread, which would have been a large flat loaves of unleavened bread. He gave it to the disciples, the words indicating that he personally handed it to each one of them. Can you, can you imagine? Then he said these words, take, eat, this is my body. So a sharp departure from the normal, normal Passover meal. This would have shocked the disciples. This is my body. Luke adds some detail. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this, why? Because just like the Passover, to remember the great salvation that God has provided to you through the sacrifice of His own Son. It's not just popping a little broken piece of cracker in your mouth. So also He took the cup, the common cup, I believe, the third cup, called the cup of blessing. He takes the third cup, which corresponds, you see, to the third promise. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgments. You give thanks probably with the words similar to these. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. He took the third cup of blessing and shocked them even more. You have to see them exchanging shocked glances when he said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the transgression or for the forgiveness of sin. You must remember how repulsive blood was and frankly is to the Jewish mind. 
They were strictly forbidden from blood. Now here Jesus actually says, this cup is my blood. Drink it. It is reminiscent of John chapter 6 where Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. Eat His flesh, drink His blood. Remember when He said those words, many of His so-called disciples, that word is actually used, turned away and followed Him no longer because these were most difficult words. You cannot call yourself a Christian if you do not partake of the body and blood of Christ recognizing His crucifixion for you. Some want to call it a bloody religion. It is. Here he says those words again. We know he means unless you are willing to receive and partake of the sacrifice of Christ, there will be no forgiveness of sin. Know this, Jesus was instituting a new memorial. But he was doing much more than that. He was doing away with the old covenant and he was bringing in the new a new covenant by which our sins would be eradicated, forgiven forever. Are we beginning to understand the importance of this meal? See, the old covenant was inaugurated in Exodus chapter 24 with the shedding of blood. Listen to these words. Then he, that is Moses, took the book of the covenant, that's the law, he'd just gotten up on Mount Sinai, And he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Yeah, sure. They did not do all that the Lord had commanded because they could not. It's not you understand that the law was bad. It was good. It was because they were weak in their sinful flesh. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, listen to these words, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Do those words sound familiar? These were most important words to every Jew. The the disciples in that room that night knew these words. They understood, maybe not till later, that Jesus was instituting a new covenant A covenant Jeremiah talked about in Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant, the old covenant, which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Remember at the Passover? My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God. Don't miss this lessons, and they shall be my people. You see, the Lord's Supper is a reminder of a whole lot more than broken body and shed blood. As infinitely important as that is, while it includes that, uh, it, it, it tells us, it reminds us that by the sacrifice of Jesus, he brought the new covenant and he sealed it with his own blood.
This is good news. And we remember it with this meal, a Christian Passover, if you will, by which when we have eaten his flesh and drunk his blood, meaning we have received his sacrifice by faith and have been born again, our sins have been forgiven, we partake together remembering the inauguration of the new covenant. And we do not remember a deliverance from Egypt any longer. That was the last Passover. We remember forever, through many Passovers, our deliverance from sin. A couple more thoughts as we prepare to take communion together. Notice verse 29 says, again says, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day I drink it with you, uh, new with you in my Father's kingdom. Certainly, this is a reminder that Jesus is coming back, and we will drink together at the Messianic banquet. Remember, I said I believe this communion cup of which we will participate is the third cup, but there were four cups, and they correspond to the four promises of Exodus chapter 6. The fourth promise said this, then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. I do not believe that Jesus drank of the fourth cup that night. I believe he will drink it with us new when we are in his presence as his people, and he is our God, and we are enjoying the fullness of the kingdom. Finally, verse 30 says, they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And what is at the base of the Mount of Olives? The Garden of Gethsemane. The hymn was most likely the last part of the Hillel Psalms, which ends with these words, You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Today we gather again as the body of Christ, and I want us to remember His goodness toward us, to extol Him and to give thanks. Eucharisteo, to give thanks for he is good. And so we will now observe the Lord's Supper together. I want to remind you as we do that he is present spiritually, specially at his table. I want to remind you as we eat together that we eat, we eat of his bread which richly symbolizes his body given for us. We drink of his cup which richly symbolizes his blood poured out for many for their forgiveness of sin, this new covenant which is found in his blood, and we eat together because we are one body.